0: Uh, whether you're playing this game of questions with a friend always invites conversation you know whether you're playing it but doing it as part of a work product as well too it's almost more about the conversation these inspire kind of create in the room versus the question answer to the question themselves you know it's always like oh i didn't know that we didn't think that let's talk about why why did you answer it this way let's dive into that
1: what's up and welcome to Sweathead with mark pollard i have parker mason uh strategist is currently freelancing based out of vancouver canada we're going to be talking about the proust questionnaire today sounds very intellectual parker welcome
0: hey thanks for having me mark how are you doing
1: good good uh vancouver i immediately feel relaxed knowing that i'm in your presence because to me vancouver is i know there are troubles there but mostly relaxed fair comment or not
0: Yeah, fair comment. Definitely a bit of a slower pace than uh, Toronto or, you know, some of the other cities. And I've kind of had a conversation with people last night that no one moves to Vancouver for the job. They move here to do other stuff like hike, yoga, ski, whatever. So people go into it with that mentality.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a a beautiful place, but I hear that disappearing up the mountains mid-afternoon not super uncommon if there's something worth disappearing for right
0: yeah or uh, or before work as well too kind of depends on on what you're up for it kind of makes for less of a social culture here but makes sure that uh, everyone's kind of enjoying life and always seems to be pretty happy
1: that's my. so people actually go skiing before work like that's a really foreign concept for me
0: yeah uh you can do ski touring before work or definitely do a, a hike before work uh, earlier this summer i did a, a sunrise hike and was back in the city by 9 a.m and had a full day ahead of me which was pretty awesome
1: I love it. I love it. All right. So before we go into the Prouse questionnaire, why don't you situate us in your life? Tell us a little bit about your career and then we'll get into how you use the Proust questionnaire in your strategy work.
0: For sure. I've been in Vancouver for about five years now after kind of doing a bit of a stint uh, around the world with uh, DDB, working in uh, Toronto and Auckland and Sydney on kind of a few big uh, big of those fancier global brands and uh, decided that I uh, kind of wanted to move a bit closer to home, be a bit closer to family and be a bit closer to where I could enjoy life and, you know, spend some time in the mountains. So Ended up in Vancouver and decided to give freelancing a shot, which has been a pretty amazing five years. Went back to an agency for a bit, but it just made me realize uh, how good it is to be a little bit more independent, be kind of in control of your own destiny. So I've done a ton of digital strategy. When I moved here, I started doing a lot more brand strategy. And I think over the past few years, started doing a lot of those just kind of like brand books that just felt like doing the same thing kind of over and over again. Kind of here's the mission, uh, you know, here's the vision, here's the values for it. Over the course of COVID, uh, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons and some role-playing games with friends on Zoom. And I realized as we were starting to build out these these characters, you were kind of asking each other questions. And it felt so much like the work we do to build out a persona or kind of build out what a brand's tone of voice is for some of this work. So I started to apply some of that thinking and the kind of questions we ask these these characters as we play these games. And at the same time, came across the Proust questionnaire, which is uh, in the back page normally of... Vanity Fair, they ask celebrities these questions and go through them. Vanity Fair didn't invent it, obviously. Marcel Proust did. And they started it out as a parlor game, I think, in like the 20s or like the the 10s, as the kind of way of entertainment was to ask each other these questions. So I kind of brought those questions into playing Dungeons and Dragons and uh, another RPG with some friends over uh, COVID, and then started to apply it to some brand projects and some kind of persona building projects I worked on and kind of went from there.
1: All right. We're going to get into that, but you've given me two. Two little things that I cannot help but chew at. And the first is the fact that you've worked for the same, well, agency essentially, but in different parts of the world. What were the biggest differences working for DDB in Toronto versus Sydney? I used to sleep under the desk at Tribal DDB in Sydney uh, when I was making my rap magazine. So I've spent some time on their floors.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, I think DDB Toronto and DDB uh, Sydney, definitely the most DDB, uh, super creative driven at the time. Definitely huge differences in probably what I was doing as well, too. When I went to uh, DDB Sydney, I was on the account side, which was kind of quick learning that I was not probably a great account person, a much better strategist than the, uh, the account side. DDB Toronto was where I started my career, and I owe a ton of thanks to a ton of the awesome people I worked with there who kind of gave me that initial kind of education, that kind of crash course in, in advertising and, uh, and business. And uh, I think you know also worked at DDB uh, New Zealand in, in Auckland, and I think that one was the most different uh, probably in the way the the office was was run, and I think one of the most powerful things there was that the leadership team used to sit with the creatives and the account team, and so that they really knew what was going on with the work, were really close to it, and could offer tons of great insight, and were just there to be trusted and, and helpful, and it kind of made a huge difference in the way that office was run. And I uh, still have a ton of respect for the the people down at DDB New Zealand.
1: Now you give me a friendly answer, so now I've got a now I have to give you a <laughs> follow up question. What, what was the hardest thing? And there'll just be one follow-up question. What was the hardest thing adapting to the culture in Sydney the advertising culture in sydney
0: in in Sydney, I think it was coming out of DDB New Zealand where I think the uh, the team was a a lot more kind of worked loved working well together and I think again, the leadership kind of brought that from from New Zealand to to Sydney Sydney, I'd say it was a much more kind of independent people really wanted to drive their own thoughts forward and I think it created uh, a bit of probably a bit of conflict uh, for myself in the agency and at least it, it felt like it just wasn't as friendly of a place compared to uh Toronto and New Zealand. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I apologize on behalf of my people <laughs> for that situation. So
0: oh.
1: Uh you also mentioned that you felt that you were doing certain kinds of work. And I think you said brand books, etc., over and over and and it felt repetitive. I want to talk to you a little bit about that because being able to kind of create brands, do a brand strategy, create brand books for a lot of people feels like Potentially really fulfilling work, but you can get stuck in cycles through a career where you're like, oh, I'm doing the same thing. Can you describe what that was like for you? How long it took to really diagnose that you felt you were doing repetitive work? Because there's always maybe it's the next one, maybe it's the next one. Mm -hmm. And then what you did to solve that sense of repetition.
0: Yeah, probably after doing it for about a year or so of kind of clients asking and kind of saying, hey, can you give us a brand strategy? Can you, can you give us this this brand book? And I said, absolutely. We need to kind of do a workshop first, sit down and do it. And kind of then I can create this kind of output of a brand book. We'll go through a few rounds of feedback. And, you know, after doing the first one, I was a little bit uncomfortable. I was like, this is outside my zone. Did the second one, I was felt more comfortable with it. Did the third one, it kind of felt like I'd had a bit of a formula for it. By the fourth, fifth and sixth, it felt like the formula was just so repetitive, and especially the nature of the client feedback. And it kind of ended up watering down a little bit of the final deliverable to the fact that, you know, I kind of felt like I was delivering the same thing over and over, which the clients might have liked at the end of the day, but felt like I was kind of not doing the most innovative, cool stuff on my own. And uh, from there, I'll probably do a little bit less brand strategy and try and look for more interesting opportunities or bring different lenses or ways of, of looking at it, and kind of saying, let's not just do the typical, you know, vision, mission, values, tone of voice. And you've kind of got your six to eight slides there. And, How can we mix it up and bring in some more personality or or color into it from other places?
1: Mm. Is is it fair to say that when you're in that state, when you're smelling this sense of repetition and smelling maybe a sense of restlessness, that there's also that voice in your head, which is like, I'm supposed to enjoy this. I've worked to be able to do this in the first place. It's a privilege to be able to do it like this, but it's not quite clicking
0: exactly and when i first started doing I first moved to vancouver i was doing started doing brand strategy then and it was super exciting and new and i was like oh this this whole angle of strategy that i've kind of had a bit of experience doing and knew about it but it was yeah it felt fresh and exciting and new and then after a few years it kind of dove off and i wanted to explore some some different stuff but absolutely
1: all right it's just worth pointing these things out because often when you're coming up you're like the next thing's going to be the thing and i'm going to be happy and then you're like uh it's the next thing and then you keep doing that right yeah And and i think it's important if you like novelty, you like variety, you have to work out ways to reinvent your work and maybe yourself so that you feel that energy that you want to feel because your work will be better for it. We're just having an honest conversation about these things. Yeah. All right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I started out doing social media and kind of got a bit bored of that, started doing more digital. And now I've kind of circled back and said, hey, you know what? Social media has got some newer, different stuff going on. It's kind of cool, kind of fun to get back in there and start to do some of that planning. And I'm sure I'll get tired of that after a, a few months or another year after that and try something maybe, else maybe. yeah yeah for sure yeah. for
1: sure all right the prowse questionnaire let's get into it how do you use this in in your work it's 35 questions how do you use it yeah i've used it a couple of different ways uh for
0: kind of a side project that i'm doing with a, a friend of mine you know we started to put together this is months back the kind of the the brand book for it to kind of you know make sure you're on the same page with what we wanted to do and he's more of an seo digital guy and i said hey i can kind of figure out the tone of voice with the side project I said, how about we sit down and have a coffee and uh, run through the pros questionnaire as if we were that side project? How would this kind of this brand, this kind of company that we're starting, how would they answer the questions? Kind of make sure we're on the, the same page. It has to do with cycling in the, in the city and, you know, riding your bike in the city. And as we went through the questions and kind of talked through each of the answers, we realized we were really on the same page for, for what we wanted to do with this, this side hustle thing we're going we're gonna to do soon. And I kind of really, both of us kind of clicked at that moment and said, great, you know, this this is, is going to work. I started to pull it into a few other projects since then and kind of went through it and would talk through some of the questions with clients and get them to answer it as if they were that brand and how it might come to life. But I've also found a lot of value in doing it in workshops. We've been doing some journey planning for workshops. To set things off, you know, you've got an audience in mind for the workshop. Everyone's kind of read through some of the data. We know this audience is, you know, some of their patterns, some of their spending habits, what their interests are. But to kind of talk about it, I ask the clients to answer a few of these questions as if they were that audience. And it's a really good way to kick things off. And it's certainly not something that you'd kind of publish and say, great, we've solved the audience problem. Here it is. We've answered 10 questions in the promised questionnaire. But to get into the mindset of having a group conversation to go through it, it's a great way to kind of put yourself in the mind of that audience and really think through, oh, you know, what is, you know, one of the questions is, you know, what is your greatest extravagance? You know, what is our audience's greatest extravagance? You know, it's not going to be buying our brand's product or, you know, buying this because we're talking to them. It's something else in their life. What else is going on in their life? What is their greatest fear? And again, we're not going to solve that fear necessarily with our product. But again, it's to kind of recognize that there are other stuff going on in the lives of the, uh, the audience we're talking about.
1: Right, right. So you use it as a bit of a thunderbolt, a real shortcut, kind yeah. of push into empathy so that you know, the conversations exactly. aren't really about like, what do we want as a company? It's let's immediately and maybe dramatically think through the minds of uh, the people that we're selling to or serving. The first question is, what is your idea of perfect happiness? Do you have an answer for that for yourself?
0: Probably, probably uh, surfing a wave off the coast of uh, Maui on a beautiful tropical day with uh, clear water beneath me. I think that's uh Done that oh, a few wow. times, and it's a pretty good idea of, of happiness, I think. And I'd love to get back there again.
1: Sign me up. Sign me up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that one in particular, how would you imagine or could you report, perhaps, about how people involved with brands have answered that based on their audience? What sorts of answers have you heard or seen from clients?
0: You know, I think, I think for this this side project I'm, I'm working on, what really kicked it off, it's uh, a side project uh, to kind of promote cycling in, our, in the, the city of Vancouver with a, with a friend of mine. And the way we answered that is the idea of perfect happiness is commuting to work on a, by a designated bike lane on a beautiful summer day. And how do we capture that kind of feeling and bring that into some of our communications and get other people to feel that? That was one way we did it. I think you know, for another brand, I'm kind of working with a sports drink brand. The one way we captured that was that the idea of perfect happiness is the glow after a really hard workout. When you know all the tough stuff's done, you're sitting there leaning against the wall, sweating and you're kind of you know, ready for the, the day, if you've done a morning workout, you just feel like you really accomplished something.
1: Okay, I like it. I like it. Yeah. And the, your language there, for those who like to use big words, uh, just pointing out that Puck is not using big words, very accessible, big word, very accessible uh, language to, again, achieve that shortcut of, uh, of that empathy boost. So we're going to go through the questions, we're not going to answer every single one of them, but we're going to pause on a couple. Number two is what is your greatest fear? And then number three is what is the trait you most deplore in yourself? How might the bike riding people
0: answer that? The bike riding people, I'm trying to remember how exactly we we answered the, the greatest fear. I think it was you know being cut off by a car or living or commuting from somewhere where you didn't have access to to great designated bike lanes. Or, you know, having a flat tire on your your way to work or something like that. You know, it's going to make you late. It's not that enjoyable thing. Your hands get greasy. It doesn't have that kind of same joy that that cycling does. And again, for the cycling one, you know, what is the trait you most deplore in yourself? For the cycling one, we answered it to kind of something along the lines of getting angry at drivers. I think that's not something that we wanted to to get into or explore. You know, it wasn't bikes versus cars. It was celebrating the idea of bicycling. So kind of that really set us up and said, great. So we're not going to be anti-car. We're just pro cycling, pro having a, a great day.
1: Okay. And then I'm going to read the next three and we'll choose one to answer. Number four, what is the trait you most deplore in others? Five, which living person do you most admire? Six, what is your greatest extravagance? Well, Parker, what's your greatest extravagance?
0: I think definitely during COVID was uh, fancy gym clothes, you know, spending a lot of time and kind of working out at home. And Vancouver is also the kind of home of athleisure. So kind of buying fancier gym clothes that you can feel good walking about and and around. Nice sweatpants, nice uh, dry fit shirts, that kind of thing.
1: Okay. And for someone who's into bike riding? What might the greatest extravagance be?
0: I think for the, the brand, I think the way we answered it on behalf of the brand was the greatest extravagance is kind of great commuter bag, you know, spending a lot on that kind of backpack that you can, or clip onto the side of your bike or something like that. Rather than the bike itself, it's the, it wasn't about spending a ton on a bike. It's not reaching this kind of hardcore road cyclist community. It's about the accessories around it. And the fact that you can t- transition from, you know, home to office pretty easily. So I think we said the greatest extravagance was like a nice bike bag.
1: Okay. I'm going to give you number seven. I I like how this interview is all set up for me. I don't have to do a lot of work. What is Parker Mason? What is your current state of mind? Super relaxed, especially
0: my, my state of mind, super relaxed. I've kind of gotten back into the zone of the freelancing thing. I've got some great clients I'm really enjoying working with that uh, don't cause me a ton of stress. Uh, And uh, I've been really able to enjoy some of the weekends as well too. So it's been an awesome balance of life and uh, work that's got me relaxed.
1: Okay. Let's go through a few. I find these Gently confrontational, as in mm. just reading them without thinking through them made me squirm a little bit. Like, would I really want to answer these things? Which is strange because a lot of us do think a lot and we do think about how we think a lot. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Do I really want to be honest with myself about some of these questions right now? Is there actually one before we keep going? Is, is there a question that you find the most yeah, gently confrontational?
0: Uh, I don't know about gently confrontational, but I think the two around what is the quality you most like in a man and what is the most quality you most like in a woman tend to be not confrontational, but a bit tougher to answer where I think some of us immediately want to gravitate towards physical characteristics and then second guess ourselves if that's appropriate or not. And then, you know, they hear the first question, what is the quality you most like in a man? And they feel like they have to answer the question about the woman the same way. So I don't know if it's confrontational. I think those are tough ones for people to answer and they really start to second guess themselves.
1: Well, just on that, with, with those two questions, are they questions that you might even sidestep when you're talking to a group of people about their brand or do you, do you go through every single question just to see what will pop out?
0: Yeah, I think there's 35 questions on the entire post questionnaire, which is a lot to go through. I think if you sit down with someone and do it and talk through the whole thing, it kind of takes around half an hour to, to an hour. So it's too much to go through in a, in a meeting or anything with clients. I definitely kind of cherry pick kind of five to 10 to go through. If it's just a one-on-one project with someone. I'll probably go through all of them. And those are probably some of the ones I cut just because I don't think they give you anything super compelling unless your brand is a very brand, you know, for men or for women and has a real stand in that territory. I don't think they quite make sense.
1: Okay. So they are 12 and 13. I'm going to go through 8, 9, 10, and 11, which are, what do you consider the most overrated virtue? Then we have, on what occasion do you lie? Then we have, what do you most dislike about your appearance? And then which living person do you most despise? So I could see a brand finding a few of those useful. On what occasion do you lie for bike riders is that something that would be useful in a workshop
0: you know i think again for for our brand it was kind of bringing it to life it was there's two ways you add it are you doing it for the bike riders themselves or the brand that's it's about cycling i think the if you're talking about it with your persona and trying to bring to life that persona kind of thinking about on what occasion would this persona lie again it doesn't have to do anything about the brand but it might as you said serve as a bit of lightning bolt for guys thinking about other things or inspire other pieces of that consumer journey you might be planning or of some of those communications even for the brand i think it's probably a chance for a brand to take an honest look at itself and say you know where might they not want to talk about things in their communications you know what's that stuff they try and sweep under about their product or you know who they are or their their history it's not that brands or corporations would would ever lie but just kind of stuff that they they might want to not talk about as much
1: yeah, yeah. No, I, I get it. I get it. Uh, the next one is probably useful on a personal level, but also for a brand. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? This is number 14 for those of you who like to count.
0: Yeah, I think it's one chance for brands to kind of take a look and say, what are we saying too much that maybe not resonate? I know for myself, having uh, listened to a ton of stakeholder interviews and recordings myself, I know the word is definitely like. I think once I counted how many times I said like using a uh, you know find and replace kind of thing in some transcripts and it felt pretty awful. So definitely like for me. <laughs>
1: Oh, we all have our verbal ticks, don't we? Yeah. What or who is the greatest love of your life? Have you had a really interesting answer from a brand answering on behalf of their uh, "quote unquote" consumers or people customers?
0: And we've definitely had some interesting ones with uh, where we've done it for the persona side, and I think you kind of really again it doesn't replace hard data, but you know especially you're talking about it, and you kind of realize just how much more at least how much more emphasis we think our audiences put on their family and friends. And it's kind of a reminder that, you know, the brand or, you know, brands or products aren't really at the center of these people's lives so much as people are. People always kind of go towards people with this answer. And I think, you know, people always kind of say the love of my life is, you know, wife, husband, kids, family, my friends, my social group. Uh, And it's just kind of a reminder that we're not as a brand at the center of people's lives. Our ads aren't Mm -hmm. in the center of people's lives our communications aren't.
1: Do you have an answer to number 16? When and where were you happiest?
0: Yeah, I kind of think uh, probably the last time I was on a, on a great hike with some friends, uh, you know, kind of thinking back to, you know, seeing sunrise on a hike over the summer or just being on the summit of a mountain with a really good friend this summer and kind of looking around BC and thinking, yeah, this is why I moved to Vancouver. This That hike was brutal to get up to the top of here. You know, I'm exhausted, but I'm super stoked to be here right now. And there's that big kind of uh, smile on your face as you, you look around.
1: Oh my gosh, it sounds like you have a lot of, if not most of your social intellectual emotional and physical needs met parker mason yeah life is life is pretty good these days mark that's good that's good i'm, I'm happy for you that's amazing uh, i'm going to give you the next question here too which talent would you most like to have Oh that's, uh, oh, that's really
0: good. I think uh, right now, I think, uh, I wish I was better at, oh, you really put me on the spot here, Mark. I'm, I'm sorry about that. Which talent are, <laughs> <laughs> I put you on the spot with uh,
1: questions you've asked other people.
0: No, which, which talent, uh, which I right now, I think it's, uh, I wish I was better at drawing. I've got absolutely terrible penmanship. I try and sketch out diagrams for, uh, for client projects and it uh, just comes across awful and sloppy and looks like a, a kid drew it. So I'm actually trying to, uh, to work on that and trying to do a, a sketch a day to, to improve my drawing.
1: Mm-hmm. all right number 18 and we'll go through some of these in batches some of these i will i will pause on so don't worry it's not going to be 35 questions because that would take a while i'm really curious about how a brand might answer this if you could change one thing about yourself what would it be
0: yeah and i think this is one i kind of tend to, to kill because it doesn't actually always make sense for a brand to answer this you're kind of going through the process to do that change the whole thing is is part of that i think this one again is kind of as I've used the pros question more, it kind of makes more sense to do it for the, the persona side for a lot of these. So if you're developing a persona for those audiences, how would that person want to change? You know, what's going to get them to, to do something different? You know, what are they thinking in their head that they want to change?
1: Okay. Um, this next one I find quite useful if you're involved with, say, in internal strategy or organizational change. And the question is number 19, what do you consider your greatest achievement? So if you're working with people on, for example, how to write better creative briefs or how to do better creative work, this kind of question is useful because in answering it, you, you don't just want a quick answer as in it's campaign X or it's this thing we did in you know 2019, that's it. You want to understand why. That's the thing that comes to mind because in their answer to that, in their explanation, you might unearth the behaviors and the beliefs that coexist that you then want to put on show so that they can remember when they are striving to do great work, that those behaviors and beliefs need to be front of mind, not just kind of accidental. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anything to add about that?
0: I think you kind of uh, yeah you, you said uh, you said it. I think you said it very well. The, the answer when you kind of dig into it, and I think a lot of these too. I think you said it, not just this question; it's to dig into the why as well too. Uh, whether you're playing this this game of questions with a friend it always invites conversation. You know whether you're playing it, but doing it as part of a work product as well too. It's almost more about the conversation these inspire, kind of create in the room versus the question answer to the question themselves. You know, it's always like, oh, I didn't know that. We didn't think that. Let's talk about why. Why did why did you answer it this way? Let's dive into that.
1: Yeah. And with a question like why, because we often would say that ourselves, or we would hear it from somebody else. I don't just stop at the first answer, ask why. You know, I'm looking for things like the principles that seem to be in this person's belief system and their beliefs, maybe Mm -hmm. implicit, maybe explicit in the behaviors that come together, because those things become this little operating system that operates them literally. Is there anything other than say principles, beliefs and behaviors that you're looking for when you start to ask why? Because I I do think there's a maturing process, learning how to interview, where you go from you have these questions and you want to get the answer and kind of fill it in like a form almost on behalf of the respondent to hang on. I actually want to ask you a few more questions, just about one answer that you gave, right? There's this maturing process. So when you're asking why, what, what are you looking for? Just
0: to kind of, I think, uncover more about why they got to that answer and, you know, what formed their opinions to get there and what made them think it, you know, for example, if we're doing it again for the persona thing, if someone in the group comes up with a really odd answer for this, you know, what's inspired that answer? What's brought them to that? What's kind of the the journey to take them to that answer?
1: Okay. Yeah, you're looking for the little bits that make the sum in case yeah. the little bits are actually the things that need mm-hmm. to be exaggerated and, and emphasized in, in the future, right? Yeah.
0: yeah, I think it's also just looking at the questions, not as each answer individually, but how do you kind of this whole doing this whole survey, how does that give you a shape of someone? How does it give you a shape of a brand as well too? No one question is going to give you that you know true insight into who a person is. It's looking at it overall. And probably depending on the person, depending on the brand, you're kind of doing this on behalf, uh, it's going to be different questions that are going to be important and give you the most uh, interesting stuff.
1: Okay. Love it. All right, I'm going to do a run of four of these. And then I'm actually going to ask you personally, the very last question. And I'm going to do that because you seem like a well adjusted individual. And this question will be 23. And it's about misery. Heads up. Number 20, if you were to die and come back as a person or a thing, what would it be? Number 21, where would you most like to live? Number 22, what is your most treasured possession? And now for you, dear Parker Mason, number 23, what do you regard as the lowest Depth of misery.
0: That that is a that is a tough question. I think if it was uh, me personally, just living a lonely, unfulfilled life, so probably loneliness is the lowest depth of uh, misery. And that's because I think of myself as a pretty pretty social guy.
1: Right, right. Have you spent time in depths of misery that involve loneliness?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think uh, having moved and traveled around a lot, there's definitely been points where I've been pretty uh, running pretty solo for a while, and uh, it was pretty pretty miserable until I kind of moved moving to a different city every couple of years there's always time to it takes to make new friends make those new social connections and as much as we're all connected around the world with zoom and everything it's not quite the same until you build up that that friend network in a new place
1: have you decided to plant roots have you decided to stop moving around every couple of years (laughs) where are you at with that
0: yeah, I think being in Vancouver five years, I'm going to stick around in Vancouver for a little while. It's uh, such a great city, as you said. It gives you some, such that awesome balance of work uh, and life and social activities. I've kind of lived in the big cities of uh, Toronto, and Auckland's not as big, but Toronto and uh, Sydney, and I kind of, Vancouver's the perfect size city. It's got some city stuff. It's got nature stuff. It's got a great amount of work and great amount of social activities.
1: I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, 24 is what is your favourite occupation? You've had a few different phases of career. I mean, What's your favorite occupation?
0: Uh, Just a freelance consultant now. You know, I don't even know if I'm quite calling myself quite a strategist. I'm doing a lot of work with some agencies just to help them out more with their process and their strategy team. And I'm doing less actual strategy work for their clients. And just, you know, the balance of the freedom that's given me to kind of choose, you know, kind of make my own week, make my own month. And also, I love teaching and, and helping others. And it's given me a lot of joy in, in doing that as well, too. So current occupation of, you know, advertising strategic consultant, I'm not really sure I have a, a title anymore, is, is absolutely it. Yeah,
1: well, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Because I think when people start off down their own path, there's certain language that they might start to use, freelancer, consultant, etc. Then they might be debating about whether they want to be creating their own business. But, you know, you've... You just said that you don't necessarily lead with the word strategist right now. You use the word consultant, which which is a bigger, less specific word in many ways. Yeah. What led you to that?
0: Uh, I think it's just, I, I don't know if I was, I think mean, I had before that I was doing some digital strategy. I was doing some brand strategy. And I think I had a business card at one point that I made for myself that said, you know, brand and digital strategy. And then realized that kind of said those were two sort of different things. It wasn't necessarily pigeonholing myself, but uh, it also didn't really describe what I do. So I kind of, these days, I'm sure I have a title that I've got for myself on LinkedIn, but I kind of come at it uh, more about just describing to the companies I want to work with or that want to work with me, the kinds of things I can do rather than putting a, a simple title on it. And that's led to some absolutely more interesting work and more fulfilling work for myself as well too. So rather than just kind of pumping out a quick you know, brand strategy or something or doing this, I'm actually engaging with the client or the agency a little bit more and helping their team members mm. out. I like that. I like that.
1: So we've got about 10 ish questions to go. I always have to look at this 25 to 35. That means there's more than 10 people. There's 11, right? Right. All right. So I'm going to read a few of them and then we'll pause on some. And I kind of, there's a couple here that I can see being quite useful from a brand point of view. What is your most marked characteristic? Pretty useful for a brand to be contemplating, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I
0: think you get some, this is one of those ones that almost, it's the kind of the brand people are almost expecting to kind of talk about and probably everyone's most excited to talk about. And the the downside that it all, is one where people, especially you know brands always kind of come in with those kind of canned answers. And it's one of the reasons for questions like this that I hate telling clients about what we're gonna be talking about that day because they kind of really give it that thought.
1: So what are some ways to work through those canned responses? Cause there are certain responses that seem like proclamations, big announcements that will come out especially to a question like what's your most marked characteristic, you might get a word like authenticity and it's announced in such a regal way that you can't really push it around that much or that's what people want you to think. And there's also other things like we're a better for you food brand or We're not a product, we're a lifestyle brand and and they're not necessarily characteristics, but they're examples of canned responses to questions like this that can really be stuck because the most senior person in the room has said them. How do you work your way around them to actually get to something that might be useful for the work that you're trying to do?
0: Yeah, I think, first of all, I hate, like I think I mentioned, I hate sending through these questions or any questions like this in advance for a discovery session or a session with clients, because then they kind of, they spend time doing their homework to make sure that they have those canned responses that are kind of the corporate approved ones that their boss will give uh, the thumbs up to. And then when we get in the room, I hate asking the question, you know, again, if we go through the pros questionnaire, that's, that's one thing, but you know, sometimes you talk to a brand and you say, what is your most marked characteristic? And not that we use that phrase, and I push them to say, how would you explain that to, I always use my example of my nephew who's 10 years old. You've met him to a barbecue. I love to, to set that scene. He's asking you about what your brand is known for. How would you explain it to him in really simple terms that then he can talk to his friends? And then I say, okay, great. Uh, also, my, you know, my uh, other nephew here who's, who's 18, he's just going to to university. He's obviously a little bit sharper. He knows a little bit more of the world. How do you explain it to him versus, you know, how would you write this down in an email to your boss or something like that? And so you get people to put that, that hat on of explaining it to someone who might not know their industry, who might not know, you know, our fancy marketing buzzwords that kind of like authenticity uh, and synergy that get that get added in there. And it makes them pause and use those words that are probably a bit more simple and more kind of plain English, you know, the, the $1 words versus the $10 words.
1: Yeah, so very similar to the. I'm going to read the next five questions out, but the next five questions do similar work as well, right? And they are, so number 26, what do you most value in your friends? Number 27, who are your favorite writers? Number 28, who is your hero of fiction? Number 29, which historical figure do you most identify with? Those kinds of questions set up like a new structure of conversation. You're kind of hoping to open up a new pathway that you can have a different kind of conversation with that might lead you to more usable language, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And so you take those, you know, who is, who's your hero of fiction, you know, which historical
0: figure do you want to identify with? You know, you get some great names with that. And hopefully they're all kind of in the same vein and you kind of pull out, great, what are the the shared attributes of all the people, you know, in the room that we had who said the mo- historical figure do they most identify with? So is it, are they talking about heroes? Are they talking about politicians? Are they talking about artists? You can kind of pull those common traits and say, great, based on this, we kind of think that the common themes in this are X or Y.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, I find these kinds of questions when I'm doing especially stakeholder interviews with very senior people who shift between corporate language and plain speaker. These questions help them realize that this is a different kind of interaction where I'm expecting a different kind of language and for it to be a bit playful. And sometimes in the reflection, a CEO or a very senior person sometimes can go from very matter of fact language to you start to sense their emotion. They're thinking about you know, a Ted talk and a hero on the Ted stage or someone that they grew up watching their TV shows of or watching their films, et cetera. And there can be a really beautiful crack that you're trying to essentially bottle in strategy as well. Do you find that your clients are able to open up to these kinds of questions?
0: I think it's, honestly, it's, it's 50-50, you know, not always. And I think it's a combination of depending on how willing that client is to open up uh, and how well I've set up the, the interview or the conversation that we're going to go through with these kinds of things. You know, I think sometimes if you it off too formally and say, great, you know, how do you see the brand in about, you know, 10 years? Do those really boring interview questions or things like that? It sets the tone for the entire workshop, the entire stakeholder interview. But if you can start it off on a bit more of a kind of fun note a different mentality, uh, I always use the reference from the movie Mean Girls. If you remember where uh, Amy Poehler's character plays the mom and she comes in and she's like, oh, I'm not like those other moms. I'm one of those cool moms. I, I kind of jokingly say to my clients and kind of start meetings with something a little more fun uh, as an activity or something and say, you know, I'm not, this isn't like those other meetings. This is one of those cool meetings. You can kind of put down your guard. You don't have to your laptops open. You can relax. You know, we're not going to make you take notes. We'll be taking the notes. We're not even really going to take notes. This is a conversation. And if you can set it up a little bit like that, you tend to get better answers where the, the clients are able to go off script a bit more and kind of think a bit more uh, creatively in their mind as well too and not just do those answers by by rote that they've kind of know they, they should be doing that they've read in their own brand book previously.
1: And it is, it, it is important to have some kind of script or go-to metaphor that you can use to assert the... You're basically asserting the culture of the interaction that you're going to have for the next mm-hmm. hour or for mm-hmm. the next half day uh, because otherwise people might assume it's business as usual and they might even be suspicious of you. Like, are you actually there to interview them to find out stuff about them and from them? Or are you maybe investigating them? there can be a little bit of a mistrust in the air sometimes, unless you really set the tone and set the signal for what you're expecting the type of interaction to be. Right. Exactly. And it's, it's really those, those
0: first few minutes are are key. And I wish I could say I nail it every single time in those, those conversations, those meetings, but it's, it's doesn't always happen. All
1: right. I think I, Mention number 30 i'm going to I'm mention it very briefly it sort of builds on what we already that that group that cluster of questions that we went through number 30 is who are your heroes in real life do you have one parker
0: uh, i've got a favorite author uh kim stanley robinson is my favorite science fiction author who writes a lot about climate fiction about climate change and about living on mars and uh, i think he's lived an interesting life and just writes these beautiful amazing books but otherwise, uh, I love sports and love martial arts. And uh, George St. Pierre, the Canadian mixed martial artist, is such a well-spoken gentleman and just top
1: athlete and has really dedicated himself. So those are probably my, my heroes in real life. Yeah, I used to enjoy watching him. An attractive man as well. Um, yeah, he's super, super handsome. <laughs> very handsome. Yeah, 31 and 32. I'm not sure. Would you use these ones in a, in a session? They are. What are your favorite names?
0: No, I think thirty-one is kind of one of those throwaway ones. I think it's even when you talk about it in conversations with friends and any kind of one, it's it's one of those ones that just doesn't quite work for our purpose uh, in this. And you know, even I don't know if you even get an interesting answer from anyone. Right. I think you might say. At best, you could say, you know, what are some other brand names you like? You know, if you're doing it for the persona thing, you know, what are the names of the people in your family It's kind of a switch on it, but you're not getting anything crazy insightful there. Right,
1: right. 32, I correct myself. I was going to say 32 and 31 were similar and that maybe not super useful, but like, what is it that you most dislike? It is useful, I think, for brands to have enemies or things that they dislike as a way to, I don't know, capture some drama so that there's something that you're potentially fighting. Do you use that one often?
0: yep i do and i think it's you set it up perfectly it's that always who's the brand uh against and not to say they have to be this constantly antagonistic character that they're against but i really do like the one what is it you most dislike uh and sometimes that gets answered in a way where it's what do you most dislike about what the brand is doing itself right now and you kind of say great they don't want to do this for communications but i think it's better when they answer it in the format of a little bit of as you said who they're
1: against Mm. 33 what is your greatest regret? do you have one of these personally parker
0: Uh, You know, no, only because we're on the topic of uh, advertising, probably wish I'd read some of the more classic advertising books earlier in my career. I only started doing them when I was freelancing and I was like, oh, a lot of this made sense. This would have helped me, you know, five years ago. But that's not a a crazy regret. I feel like I've lived a pretty good and happy life that's that's led me to here. So no real big regrets besides reading more advertising books. And I don't think that'll be my my deathbed regret.
1: I am so happy, but also slightly disgusted at how well balanced you seem to be as an individual and i'm wondering if it's real is this is this person real
0: uh, i think i think i probably spent uh, years not being unbalanced and i think it's just uh, as you mature and get older and bouncing around from agencies to freelance and back and you kind of based on experience have kind of led to a pretty good spot at this point in life
1: oh, it's so good it's so good no I'm, I'm happy for you it's amazing all right we have two final questions how would you like to die would you use this with a brand? Because I know some people like to write obituaries as part of a brand workshop.
0: No, I think it gets, I've tried the obituary one in part of the, the brand workshop. And I think you have to really give people the time to do that to make it happen properly. I've assigned the obituary one as a homework for clients to do either before or after. I kind of tend not to focus on the negative aspect of this one as much. I don't like to bring in like that word die, especially it can kind of kill the, the, uh, the mood in a room as well too. So it's, yeah, definitely not one I use often. It's one of those ones that I kind of kill. Uh, which is another kind of very negative word there, but you kind of take out of the uh, the list.
1: Okay, uh, for people who don't know what the obituary exercise is, could you explain it to us?
0: Yeah, it's one where you kind of ask clients. I kind of put it up on the screen sometimes, and I think it's it's not my exercise. I think other people have done it. I think I took it from another strategist I worked with at a bit, and you kind of say, you know, I've got some terrible news. The brand that we work on, you know, brand X uh, has has died. You know, obviously the memorial service has happened, and we're going to write an obituary for the newspaper and you're in charge of writing it. Uh, So just knowing the format of an obituary, you know, tell us about this brand's life and what they're going to be remembered for and uh, who will remember them and who will succeed them. And uh, people can get very creative and very good with it. It really kind of gets to the heart for people, you know, when clients write this about what the brand is most important for. And again, we talk about getting away from that kind of standard brand book, that standard corporate speak. It's a chance for them to kind of flex their, creativity and get outside that as well, too, because everyone kind of understands the obituary as a, as a format, the obituary
1: as a, as a brief. Is it right to say that there's often or possibly sometimes a bit of resistance to that kind of question? Because I don't want my brand to die.
0: Yep. I've had, uh, you know, clients just straight up say, you know, I'm not going to do this. This is too negative. We don't want to focus on the negatives. And I've kind of said, well, we're not killing your brand here. It's just more of a creative exercise. But I've definitely had some clients just push back and say, I'm not going to do this. It's too kind of dark and depressing. And I think those are the ones that also kind of won't go outside the boundaries of you know, saying anything that wasn't approved in the previous, previous existing brand communications. But the times I've done it and where the clients have really embraced it, it's really ended up with some great stuff.
1: All right. Let's talk about what you just mentioned. If you've been brought in to do brand strategy and you sense early on that the people you're working with are kind of stuck with the more corporate version of what they already have, how do you navigate that? Do you talk about it or do you just get the work done, do what you can?
0: Uh, you know, I think in, in some cases, I think this is probably where it got, you know, I got kind of bored of doing this, the same brand strategy decks over and over. I think there's only so much pushing you can do to get them outside that mentality. You can do a bit of pushing those meetings, but if they are really stuck that way and if the whole team is, uh, is well too, you're not going to get anywhere, you know, as much as of a convincing salesperson as I think I am. Uh, I can't always kind of push them too far outside the brand comfort zone. I think what can work sometimes is if you do have one or two people in that group who do have those different opinions, you can use some of that discovery time, those conversations to uncover what they're thinking and use some of that actual meeting time to talk about the tensions and how, you know, these people have really given us this kind of straightforward brand answer that feels bland and blah. But these people have really, and without naming names, but you know, other people have said this is what you stand for and it feels a little bit more interesting, and see if you can get them to lean over that way okay i think the downside of that is often if you do that when you send through the deliverable it ends up in rounds and rounds of feedback as it gets watered down and uh it's that's a tough one to fight against and probably one of the the tougher parts of what we do is getting bogged down in that feedback and not really delivering what we wanted to at the beginning of it
1: yep yep okay final question number 35 what is your motto
0: good one i'll i'll, I'll take a stab at asking this. i think i've got on my instagram bio and maybe my uh my twitter bio these days but follow the ley lines. Uh, which came from this kind of weird thought I had where back in the the old old days the druids of of England thought that there was these lines of power that connected different mountains and different kind of they put up cairns, and, you know stone things and it radiated this energy and would guide them. But it kind of turns out that if you look at a, uh, a map and kind of draw points where the mountain peaks are, you can draw a line through pretty much anywhere and cross two lines. So the idea of ley lines as being these kind of ways to actually, follow and navigate isn't kind of really there but you can still make sense of the kind of random data that's out there and kind of tell your own story with it uh so i've kind of taken that as a bit of a motto, at least from there i don't know if it's a motto so much as a a saying a tagline but yeah that's what i've been
1: using i love that one i love it i love it well we made it through the 35 questions i know it's a lot of questions to kind of get through but i hope i hope this is useful to people listening in where can people find you on the internet parker
0: Parker Mason is a pretty easy name to find. I think uh, I've got some pretty good uh, Google juice related to that. But uh, I'm also Parker now on Instagram and Parker now on Twitter, which I use as well, too. But feel free to connect with me on, on LinkedIn. Those are my big ones. And I've got a very basic portfolio site that I think doesn't have any actual work on it. And I think says I'm still a digital strategist. So you find that site, it's a little bit out of date, but uh, happy to be contacted to
1: that if you want. Yeah, love it, love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Sweathead today. I appreciate you spending time going through these questions with me. It was There was a lot there, but I, I hope it's useful to yeah. people. Uh, and best wishes with all the uh, consulting that you're doing in uh, now and, and in the future.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Mark. It was, uh, great chatting to you.
1: And stay happy or stay well adjusted. Thank you.
0: Peace.